You're listening to the Celestial Citizen Podcast, and I'm your host, Britt Duffy Adkins. Celestial Citizen is a space urban planning company looking to help build and shape a more equitable and just future for all of humanity as we become a space-faring society. This podcast seeks to provide an opportunity for conversation about how to be a better interplanetary citizen and responsible steward of Earth and the cosmos. By engaging the global public, providing greater access to the space industry, and amplifying a more diverse set of voices, progress in space can equate to progress on Earth. We who are bursting with stardust can become celestial citizens. Welcome to another episode of Celestial Citizen Podcast. Today, we'll be speaking with Phil Plate, creator of the Bad Astronomy Newsletter, to discuss his new book, Under Alien Skies, A Sightseer's Guide to the Galaxy. Under Alien Skies places you on the surface of alien worlds from our own familiar moon to the far reaches of our solar system and beyond. So whether you are an aspiring extraterrestrial citizen, casual space tourist, or curious armchair traveler, Under Alien Skies is an illuminating, always entertaining guide to the most otherworldly views in our universe. In fact, Laura Helmuth, editor-in-chief of Scientific American, writes, reading Under Alien Skies is the next best thing to traveling through space and time. Philip Plate is a funny, warm, and welcoming guide to the most marvelous places in the universe. You'll experience what it would be like to actually be there, while learning some of the most mind-expanding science humans have ever figured out. When you look up at the night sky, you'll think of this book and smile. On today's show, we are joined by Phil Plate. Phil knew he wanted to be an astronomer since the age of five when he first saw Saturn through a flimsy department store telescope. From that point on, through many twists and turns, spending 10 years working with Hubble Space Telescope as an astronomer, a programmer, and a calibration scientist led to him becoming a professional astronomer. Astronomical outreach is Phil's passion now, and he created and writes the Bad Astronomy newsletter, which is one of the most popular astronomical science blogs. You can check it out and subscribe on Substack. He's also written three other books, Bad Astronomy, Death from the Skies, and Nerd Disses, in addition to his latest publication, which we'll discuss today. Phil also holds a PhD in astronomy from the University of Virginia. And Phil, it is such a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for being here. But that's all the time we have. So thank you, folks. <laughs> like, wow. Uh, apparently, I've done a lot of stuff, but I think that's more of an indication of how long I've been doing this versus anything else. It's a very impressive background. And I think the thing I like the most about it is just the number of folks, since I've really entered the space industry, you know, last five years, I mean, the number of people that read Bad Astronomy, both that are working in the space community and industry right now, and also those that are just curious about it, everybody, it seems that I talk to reads Bad Astronomy and loves it. So it's just absolutely incredible the way that you have communicate all of these really exciting things that are going on in our solar system and beyond. 
Well, thank you. Um, that's a little bit terrifying, actually. As a science communicator, I write about, uh, well, mostly astronomy. And it involves either a press release or I see a paper or I hear something. Somebody will say, hey, I wrote a paper. And I'll think, oh, let me go take a look. And I read the paper and write about it. And then sometimes, you know, I'll get an email from one of the authors like, thank you for writing that. But I'm like, oh, oh, crap. Uh, it's usually OK. It's usually like wrote the wrong telescope down or something like that. I mean, a lot of the time it's, you know, thank you for writing about this. It was a fun article and that's always fun. But it's it's always a little bit terrifying hearing from the people you're writing about because you never know what you're going to get. Well, and I can imagine it's incredibly challenging because it covers such a wide breadth of different topics in your newsletter and in your books. So you kind of have to be, not kind of, I mean, you really have to be incredibly knowledgeable about such an expansive variety of topics that, yeah, I could see how that would be a big responsibility or, or sort of burden to bear in some ways because people do kind of expect you to be an expert on all of these numerous topics. And the world of astronomy is huge, right? So there's so many different areas of research. And most people in academia really like zero in and focus on just one tiny specific area. So being a science communicator, it's super challenging because you have to be able to talk about all of these different themes and ideas. And you're correct. As a scientist, as you're classically trained, going to college and university and grad school and all that, you typically do a deep dive on a single topic. And astronomy is literally the whole universe. You know, you said it's a big topic. It's the biggest topic. It's <laughs> quite the understatement. <laughs> you know, starting, starting basically at your head and going outward in every direction. So yeah, it's a lot. And reading other people's newsletters, blogs, and things like that, who comment or write about astronomy. And I'm actually more impressed with them because for me, Sure, I, I've gone through school, I got the PhD, and so I learned a lot of the basics. But most of that is deep dives into a lot of basics. Like, you know, ask me about stellar interiors, how the insides of stars work, and, you know, write down equations and things like that. But I never studied, I never studied general relativity, for example. I never took a class in that, so I have to read about it constantly. But because I've loved astronomy my whole life, and I've read a zillion books on it, and uh, read just a lot of other things, uh, articles and papers and all that, you learn, right? Uh, our brains are capable of doing that. I have the background in astronomy to help me read a paper and say, oh, this is interesting. Or I was just uh, drafting an article for my newsletter yesterday about a paper that came out making a claim. A second paper came out and said, yeah, not so much. You know, hold, whoa, here for a second, your, your claim isn't right. And being able to look at both papers and analyze the spectra that these people were taking and all that. Sure, being the professional astronomer helps there. But I'm writing about a lot of stuff that I haven't studied specifically, but I have some general knowledge of and a backup of a lifetime of science to help me. So great. But then I read somebody else's blog and it's like they're a grad student. They're just starting out or somebody who's not necessarily an astronomer. And I think, how... How do they write this without the sort of, you know, decades long background? And so for me, that's more amazing. If somebody's been doing this for 40 years or 30 years or something, you kind of have higher expectations that they know what they're talking about. Not necessarily. You kind of. And one of the things I just want to mention is astronomy is a very broad topic, but so is a lot of stuff that you read about like medicine. I read a lot of articles about astronomy and I see how a lot of people get things wrong and it can be frustrating. And then I read something about medicine and I think people's lives are at stake and you're writing how oat muffins are going to cure their cancer. And that's 
Mm, that's not true. So how do I trust anything that I read? Well, from that person. But also, how do you write about medicine when that is also an immensely broad topic where also the stakes are incredibly high? I mean, it's such an important point. It's critical to really get things right, especially when we are communicating to the public as well. And so I think that that's one of the things in particular that I just really love about your work is there's clearly that commitment to really getting it right. And I think you even have said in other interviews that you won't always necessarily get every little thing right. Like you'll inevitably make mistakes. It's just a process of when you're communicating, right? It's impossible to get every little detail right all the time, but you do clearly have such a strong commitment towards that and to really doing right by the science. And you also have this incredible way of communicating it in an interesting and compelling way for people, as opposed to, unfortunately, a lot of the things that I probably read from the astronomy field, it's like, could be the most interesting topic in the world and the paper, the white paper, whatever it's going to be, it's like ugh, your eyes will just glaze over kind of reading through it because you're just bogged in all these different calculations and things like that, which are, of course, important. But when you're trying to kind of get the general public on board with it or excited about it, that's not going to do it. So being able to tell it in a way that is very interesting I think is critical as well. Well, you have to know your audience, right? I don't expect the random person to pick up a copy of Astrophysical Journal and read about white dwarf layering or something I just saw today about cobalt diffusion constants in white dwarf atmospheres. And I'm like, no, okay. I mean, that's important stuff, but paper may be a little complex. So you have to know your audience. If you're writing for a blog or a newsletter, there are going to be people out there who are interested in astronomy, interested in science, but may not know that much about it. And there are times I get comments from people saying, you know, I don't understand. You said this. And what do you mean by that? And I realized, oh, okay, I didn't really explain that well. Or uh, a lot of the times when I have a concept like, say, redshift, I will link to something I've written before. Because it turns out, if you write millions and millions of words over a career, it's easy to link to old stuff. So I try to do that. But in the end, if I'm writing for professional astronomy audience, which I'm very rarely doing, but I will occasionally give talks to an audience like that, a very different crowd. I'm still going to try to be engaging and funny, but I might use math in a description of something. Whereas uh, in the newsletter, in the newsletter, I do use math, but I try to keep it to like vaguely remembered ninth grade algebra or, or a little bit of trig. And if I do, I'll have a diagram that says, hey, remember these angles and how this all works? But only because something really cool has come up. And it's like, you know what, if I do the math, it shows you something important. And math can be fun, I think, if, you, if it's done right. And as a matter of fact, I've got one coming up probably in the next week that has a lot of math in it. But it's like really very straightforward, just numbers. Yeah, it's just a matter of knowing your audience, having experience, and also something, even from the beginning, and this mostly came from friends and family, they would read my stuff and say, I can hear you reading this in my head as I'm reading it. Hear my voice. That's like the best thing you can say to a writer, except here's a wheelbarrow full of $20 bills. That's the best thing you can say to a writer, actually. The second best thing is, you know, I hear you in my head because that means that I'm writing the way I talk, or at least it means that the writing is coming across as somewhat conversational, informal, and I think people can absorb the information better. And there are times I'm writing about more serious topics where I may be a little bit more 
prosaic, a little bit more, maybe that's the wrong word, a little more poetic, actually, the opposite of prosaic. But in general, you just have to think about what you're writing and how to write it. And if you're passionate about a topic and you let that passion through, that's going to engage people. Well, and speaking of in your own voice, you recorded the audiobook version of this as well. Is that correct? Yeah, I know. What were they thinking? No, it was great. Oh, did you listen to it? Yeah. So actually, I don't know if this is a thing that people are doing, but I actually really enjoy both like reading a physical copy because I'm old school and I like that. And I feel like you get something out of it that's a little different. But I also like to do a hybrid. So I might like read three chapters and then listen to two via the audiobook and then go back to the book. And so I like to switch in and out, especially if the audiobook is read by the author, because it's like you said, you like you hear their voice. It just adds a different element. It's very interesting to me. Well, that's very cool. And I, I don't know if a lot of people do it. I wish they would, because that means they're buying two copies of the book. Um, but in <laughs> fact, this is my third sort of officially publishing house book. One book you'd mentioned, Nerd Disses, was self-published, kind of. Zach Wienersmith, who does Saturday Morning Breakfast Cereal, and I decided to put out kind of a funny short book about nerd insults. And we went through a, an online publishing place, but it wasn't like a, an official publisher. Everything else is official. And my first two books, I wanted to do the narration, but they didn't want me to because I didn't really have any experience. Now I'm, I'm close to my deathbed and turning to dust and I have some experience behind me and I've done a lot of TV and I've done radio and podcasts and all that stuff. And the fact that this book, it's not like a personal voyage or anything like that, but it, I do have anecdotes about me in there and it's more in my voice, I think, than anything I've written before. It felt like it was the time to try. And they said, well, send us a demo reel. And I said, all right. So I talked to a friend of mine, Mary Robinette Cowell, who does a lot of audiobooks. She graciously gave me an hour of her time. And I read a bunch of different ways, like I'm standing on stage. And she's like, nope, you're projecting. Nope, you're projecting over and over again. So finally, I was able to talk in a more natural voice and read this carefully and sent it in. And they said, sure. I didn't know what the experience was going to be like. I thought, oh God, it's going to be really boring sitting there reading a book for hours on end. Turns out it wasn't that hard. I thought it was going to be a lot of stumbling mistakes, sentence by sentence. And they told me a lot of readers, a lot of narrators do stumble almost every sentence. And they were kind of shocked that I didn't. I was reading, you know, whole paragraphs, sometimes a page at a time without saying something dumb, without missing a word or something. And it went really quickly. And I guess it's because I was reading my own stuff. And as a writer, I have to read and reread and reread my stuff and make sure I'm doing it right. And I do say things out loud a lot to make sure it sounds right. So yeah, it was. It wound up being a really interesting and fun experience. And I'm hoping to do it again. I don't want to write another book because writing a book is like the worst experience you can, you can ever possibly have. It's like, here, take all your deadlines that you have now and add this ginormous one that actually has a series of, of slightly smaller deadlines chapter by chapter. And oh, by the way, you have to find an illustrator and pictures and then, you know, work on the cover. And oh my God, yeah. Well, I was going to ask you, are you planning to write another one? It sounds like not. Well, actually, I, but I say that after every book. Uh, and then <laughs> 10 to 12 years later, I wind up writing. I try to write a book once every decade, something like that. <laughs> this, one, this one was actually not counting nerd disses with Zach. My last book came out in 2008. So it's been 15 years because it's a lot of work. It's hard. And I don't want to just write a book. And I've had offers like, can you write about this or that? And it's like, 
but everybody's written about that and I don't want to write it. I've had textbook offers and I'm like, the market is flooded with textbooks. And if I write one, it's going to take me like five years to put it together. And it's, it's a huge scam because you make a ton of money doing it. But it's also just a vast amount of work and something you just don't want to do. So I want to write what I want to write. And this was something I wanted to write. Well, and I mean, one of my questions for you was going to be, you know, sort of like what inspired theme and topic of Under Alien Skies in particular? In a nutshell, when I write about astronomy and I show pictures or I show somebody something through my telescope, I used to take my telescope out every Halloween and I would tell the kids, if you want a piece of candy, got to look through the eyepiece. And that was always kind of fun. Show them Jupiter and the moon and Saturn. And one of the questions I get a lot from all these different crowds is... Would it really look like this if you were there? And that, that's very typical of like a Hubble image because people are kind of aware that Hubble's a, a big telescope and it's in space and it may see things differently. And if you're looking at a picture of a galaxy and you were floating outside that galaxy, would it look like that? And I always have to say, no, because you'd be dead. However, assuming you're in a spaceship or something like that, yeah, the view would not really look like this. And for some things it is. You look at the moon, with the moon, basically, you know, what you get is, is what you see. Other things, it's not. And back in the early 2000s, it became so clear to me that some of these things would be fun to describe and say, this is not what you see in the pictures and that your eyes behave differently than a camera, especially a camera attached to a telescope. So I wanted to write an article about it and I pitched it to Astronomy Magazine and just sort of came up with the title Under Alien Skies and it turned out to be one of those moments where you go, wow, that was, that was actually really good. That was a good title. Uh, and I wrote <laughs> it and it wound up being a popular, it was actually th one article, but three different scenarios. And I kind of put it in the back shelf of my brain saying at some point I want to expand on this and maybe write more, or write a book or something. And uh, oof, three years ago now, I suppose, I pitched a book to a publisher and they didn't want that book. And it's a book I will probably still write at some point. My agent said, well, do you have any other ideas? And I'm like, of, of course. Let me think of something really quick. And I wrote, and it's like, well, <laughs> I have all these notes for Under Alien Skies. I've had them for 20 years. Maybe it's time. Mm -hmm. We pitched it yeah. and W.W. W. Norton accepted it. And to answer the question, would this really look like if you were there, is what would this stuff look like if you were there? And not just writing about it like, here is a Hubble picture of a galaxy. Note the spiral arms and the blue spots that are hot stars. I don't want to do that. I want to say you are embedded in this object. You are standing on the moon. You are trying to land on an asteroid. You are in a spaceship sailing over Saturn's rings. What do you see? What do you experience? And I wrote it that way. I wrote it in second person. A lot of it is you see this. You know, you see Saturn's rings this way and intersperse that with the more expository, here's why that's happening, and, and try to draw the reader in. Because the thing I want them to walk away with is, these are real places that exist, we can visit many of them, and we can understand how they behave and what they would look like based on the science that we have developed over the past few centuries. And now, a quick word from our gold sponsor, Multiverse Media. We are currently witnessing the birth of a robust, sustainable economy within cislunar space. What is cislunar space? Well, it's the part of space that ranges from low Earth orbit out to geostationary orbit, and then beyond toward the moon's surface. 
This cislunar economy will involve a much more interconnected paradigm for space development. For a snapshot and user guide to the players and opportunities ahead, New Space Global, a multiverse media property, has produced a report titled Cislunar Market Opportunities. To get your copy, please go to cislunar.report and use coupon code CITIZEN10 for 10% off a single user license. Thank you again to Multiverse Media for sponsoring Celestial Citizen this year. Now, back to the show. I think it's so incredibly important to give these sorts of descriptive, you know, visualizations to help people imagine, you know, as you say, you know, what it would be like to stand on the surface of a planet or a moon and kind of experience it. And of course, on this show, we talk a lot about plans to eventually live on the moon someday. And you dedicated an entire chapter to this topic. But can you explain or or give folks here a little bit of a glimpse into some of the visual features or perspectives that someone would actually have and perhaps not expect from the lunar surface. Yeah. And I would assume people listening to this podcast probably have some basic knowledge about the moon. And it it depends. Again, you have to know your audience. There are times when I have to describe things like, well, the moon doesn't really have an atmosphere. And so the sky is always black. And that means even when the sun is up, the sky is black. Seeing stars is still difficult because the sun is lighting up the landscape around you. Your eyes adjust to that. When you look up in the sky, stars are faint. You can't see them. So I talk about that a little bit, but also I describe what it's like to see a solar eclipse from the moon. You know, from the earth, the moon passes in front of the sun, a very slow event. It takes, well, an hour or more for the moon to completely cover the sun. And then when it covers the sun, that only lasts for a few minutes but you can see the sun's corona, its atmosphere. It gets dark where you are. The birds will start chirping and sometimes crickets will start making their noises. Excuse me, the birds will stop chirping. Birds chirp during the day and at night they're quiet. But I describe what will that look like from the moon and what, what's it like to see the shadow of the moon passing in front of the earth. And that was a lot of fun. That was one of the first things I thought of when I was sort of outlining what I wanted to write about. It's like, wow, wouldn't it be cool to see a eclipse from the moon? But also, one thing, for example, that I didn't expect is that I know that the moon spins once for every time it goes around the earth, and so we always see the same face. Anytime you go out and look at the moon, you see the same face. However, because the moon's orbit is slightly elliptical and also tilted, we can actually see a little bit around the edges, depending on on what part of the orbit the moon is in, what our perspective is on it. And so what we call the near side and the far side isn't really that part of a, of a border, you can actually see onto the far side a little bit. And so I was thinking about that, like, oh, well, this clearly means that if you're on the moon, the Earth's going to move in the sky a little bit. When you read an article or you hear somebody talking about what it's like on the moon and they say, well, the Earth doesn't move in the sky. And that's not strictly true. And I thought, well, it's going to move a little bit, right? And so I started doing the math and that got really complicated really fast. So I turned to some software, Stellarium, for example, online planetarium software, And you can set it to say, I'm standing on the moon. Let me look at the earth over the course of a month, the lunar orbit. What do I see? And the earth moves a lot. It's many, many, many degrees. I don't remember the exact number. I think it's like 13 or 15 degrees, which is bigger than your fist held at arm's length. So the earth does move quite a bit. And that means 
from certain spots on the moon. You can watch it rise and set. Now, it takes a month. <laughs> it's a very slow process. But that surprised me. And also, for people who may not know, the moon's surface is covered in this powdery material. It's basically eroded rocks. And a lot of people call it the dirt or the soil of the moon. And I try not to do that because it's not dirt or soil. That implies there are bacteria and organic materials in it. But this stuff is, is not like that. It's ground up rocks. It's like volcanic dust. And it's sharp, tiny grains that gets a static charge from the sun and cling to everything. And that is a serious issue if you're going to build habitats on the moon. That stuff's going to get in your gears, your machinery. It's going to get all over your suit. If you breathe it in, it can give you silicosis, lung disease. And that's something that people are really going to have to deal with. And there are some folks out there thinking about that. You can use this stuff for building material, which is great. It's useful. But how do you get rid of it? And you, know, you don't want to be tracking that stuff into your moon base. And that's a topic of fairly hot research right now. And it's something we have to figure out if we want to live on the moon. So the moon is just one example. And throughout the course of the book, you kind of go further and further out in our solar system and then beyond in talking about all of these different, you know, views that would-be space travelers could experience. Now, I'm curious what view, and I think I know after reading the book, but you know, what view would be the most compelling for you to witness or the one that you would be most excited to see firsthand? There are a couple of different ways to answer that. One is uh, Saturn. <laughs> it's just super easy. That was what I was going to guess. <laughs> I could sense a passion for Saturn. Yeah. And it's, it's what got me into astronomy when I was a kid. It's something I always love looking at. Cassini mission, which orbited Saturn for 13 years, just destroyed my brain just over and over again with everything it showed us. And it was so much fun to write about it and think about it. And there were a lot of things I, again, I wasn't sure about as I was writing it. It's like, oh, I need to draw myself a bunch of pictures and figure this stuff out. And the rings are so complex with so many weird things in them, things you don't necessarily expect because Saturn's rings are made up of trillions of chunks of ice and they're small down to a, you know, a, a tiny grain up to maybe the size of a car, the biggest ones. And they're all orbiting freely. They might bump into each other, but they don't have a lot of gravity. But if you wind up getting something even small, like a tiny moonlet that's less than a mile across, its gravity can start to pull the ring particles toward it. And when that happens, all sorts of weird effects happen. You get gaps in the rings. You get things called propellers because they look like airplane propellers, and it's drawing in ring particles that are moving ahead of it because they're orbiting closer to Saturn and therefore they're moving faster. And it's pulling in ones that are moving slower because they're farther out from Saturn. And you wind up just getting this weird propeller-like shape. I don't know if anybody predicted that, but once they were seen, a bunch of papers came out. It was like, well, we should have expected this. And, and maybe they were predicted. The, the physics of it is actually fairly straightforward, but you need a lot of imagination to figure this stuff out. And so there's just a lot of weird things going on in those rings. The other way to answer your question is, is as an astronomer, and I want answers, you know, what do I want to be? I want to be inside of a gas cloud, inside of a nebula. I want to see stars being born. I want to see how different stars affect each other if they're close to each other. I want to see what weird physics is going on when young stars 
are drawing material into themselves via what's called an accretion disk, a flat disk of gas and dust swirling around it. And they can also shoot out these two beams of material like a lighthouse, except it's not just light. It's actually matter blasting away from these things. And to be able to see something like that up close would be awesome as a human being, but also fascinating as a scientist because we still don't understand everything that powers these weird objects. And it would be nice to be able to just look at it and go, oh, team A predicts this, team B predicts that. And they'd be able to look at it up close and go, oh, look, it has you know spirals in the disc. That means team B is correct. That would be very gratifying and super cool. And your book also journeys to TRAPPIST-1, which still remember when that announcement was made and how exciting that was. Now, the interesting thing, though, about TRAPPIST-1, and I appreciated that your book kind of explored this because it was probably one of the first questions that I had, which was when I heard that the planets appeared to be tidally locked. Like, immediately my mind was like, well, but how does that work? Like, how would that actually appear? What would a planet side that is permanently in daytime or nighttime look like? So I don't know if you can offer sort of like a a little preview into that as well. Obviously, you talk about it at length in the book. But just for folks here listening to the podcast, can you kind of give a little snippet of what tidally locked actually means when you think about kind of the visual perception of it? TRAPPIST-1 is a red dwarf, which is a tiny star, much lower mass than the sun, so it's much fainter and much cooler. I studied them for a while when I was working on Hubble, and they're really interesting. You'd think, oh, it's just a dim bulb, who cares? And it turns out, no, they actually have some really interesting things going on with them. But one thing is that we're discovering is they're really good at making planets. Basically, every red dwarf we see probably has at least one planet, and maybe multiple planets. And in fact, TRAPPIST-1, it's a weird name, it's named after the telescope, which in turn is named after um, some monks who make beer. And the astronomers who made the telescope liked the beer, so they named it after the beer. There you go. TRAPPIST-1 is an unusually tiny and cool, what we call an ultra-cool red dwarf, that's actually relatively close, something like 40 light years from Earth. It's still very faint, but it makes it close enough to study. And it was only discovered in the 90s. It wasn't all that long ago that it was discovered to have four planets orbiting it. They were all discovered at the same time. And it turns out all four of them are, for a broad enough range, roughly the size of Earth. And then three more were discovered not much later that were also about the size of the Earth. And the thing is, with M-dwarfs, with red dwarfs, technically we call them M-dwarfs, M-type stars, these planets can orbit very close to the star. And that's a good thing because the star is so cool and so faint, it doesn't give off much energy, that if you want a planet to be habitable like Earth is, it has to be much, much closer to its star than Earth is to the sun. We're 93 million miles out from the sun, 150 million kilometers. These planets are a couple of million miles out because that that star is so much colder, right? less hot, I guess is a better term, than the sun, these planets are actually can be quite temperate. And there are three of these planets that orbit the right distance to maybe be Earth-like. I mean, we don't know, but the temperature on the surface wouldn't be that bad. And so the thing is, when you're that close to a star, the gravitational dance between a planet and a star will cause the planet to be tidally locked. Now we finally get to your question. And so just like the moon orbits the earth and spins once for every time it orbits, that's called tidal locking. It's technically called a spin orbit resonance. And these planets do that as well, or at least we think they should. And it's just the way gravity works. It's a very complex process, but 
the end result is you spin once for every time you go around. But what that means is for a planet, there's a permanent day side to the planet, a hemisphere that always faces the star, and a hemisphere that faces away. So it's always nighttime, it's always dark on that side. And if you just have a rock, here's a planet the size of the Earth, and it's just rock, no atmosphere, nothing else. It's gonna get pretty hot on that day side. It's gonna get pretty cold on the night side. And besides the fact that heat can kind of sort of flow through rock a little bit, you're gonna have a permanent day side that's gonna be brutally hot and probably unlivable. And a night side that's gonna be so cold that you know carbon dioxide might freeze out of the air. It's gonna be really cold. However, if you have an atmosphere, the atmosphere can take some of that heat from the hot side and that air will get hot and expand. It will rise up and it will flow around to the nighttime side, the dark side, the cold side, and that cold air will sink and flow around to the day side. And you get a circulation of air that could mitigate those temperatures quite a bit. And it depends on the climate, the weather, the atmosphere, all these different things. But what if I'm writing a book about what it's like to be on another planet and see what things look like? So let's pretend that uh, planet E has an atmosphere and is warm, what would you see? And it was fun to sort of extrapolate wildly and think, well, you know, where you have layers between hot and cold air, you tend to get storm systems. So there could be permanent storms at the day-night border. The wind always blows from one direction. Maybe the planet is spinning rapidly enough to get Coriolis effect. I think I ignore that in the, uh, in the book. And it was just fun to think about that. You know, it's permanently daytime, but it, maybe it's not that bad. But you can always tell what your direction is. Which way is west? Well, west is always towards the star because we're on the side of the planet where the star is always in the west. And so it was little things like that for me that make the story more real. Like I live in Colorado, and if you live on the eastern part of Colorado, the mountains are always to the west. And if you ask somebody directions, they will always look around to see where the mountains are. It's just one of those things that kind of brings home this idea that, yeah, you're on another planet, but we're still people, and we're still going to do those same sorts of things and think about things the same way. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating to think about kind of that shift in perception, even just thinking about, you know, like the science fiction we consume, like how much more rich would it be if it was like really grounded? And maybe some shows or films are, but if it was really grounded in a potential theory um, that's based in astronomy or something like that, or observations that we've had, you know, for some of these planetary bodies as well. Oh, from, um, from that- your lips to J.J. Abrams' ears, <laughs> not to pick on him in particular. But I, I say this all the time. I've done consulting for TV shows and movies in the past, and I always tell them, look, the more science you know, the more likely it is you're going to find something cool that will make the movie better. And you can ignore all this other science if you don't like it. That's fine. If it's not going to help the story or or push the plot along, great. But did you know that this can happen? And then that's kind of a cool thing that could be a, a subplot or could just make it seem more realistic. I figure the more writers know, the more choices they have. You don't want to paralyze them with too many, but if you give them sort of an idea of what else is going on, that can become a fun thing that they can then put in their story. And I'm watching all of what they call New Trek, all of the new Star Treks that are coming out. And they have a science advisor, Erin McDonald. She's a friend of mine, PhD astronomer. And I can tell when she's had some effect on the show because they mentioned something. The magnetosphere of the brown dwarf. And I'm like, ah, ah, they've been talking to Erin. And they use this stuff 
in the plot. And it makes it sound more real, but also I think it adds depth and color and richness to the story. And I really love that. Absolutely. And I mean, one of the things when I was reading Under Alien Skies is I was thinking, I was like, oh my gosh, this would make an amazing series or just like film or video content in what? general. What? What? <laughs> that, I, 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 that never occurred to me. Gosh, <laughs> I figured it hadn't. I thought that that would be a big revelation for you. No, I know. I'd, I'd love to. I'd love to make a short documentary series or something like this out of the book. But I was thinking as I'm writing, I'm, I'm thinking like if I were watching this on TV, what would I want to see? And that actually mm -hmm. helped me write it because it, it's not like I'm that Machiavellian where I'm like, oh, I'm going to make a TV show out of this. It was more like in a visual medium because this book is not a visual medium. It kind of is in that you're sparking someone's imagination and you're trying to describe something visual or visceral or sonic or whatever. And so it, it helped to think, you know, if, if I were making a movie and I wanted to see something, what would I want to see? And that helped me describe some of the things in the book. Yeah, no. And I think it absolutely reads that way for sure. So it sounds like no current plans in the works yet. Oh, but, no, no, it's not. But you'd like definitely that. be open to it. But you know, if Kevin Feige listens to this podcast or think quick, quick, Phil, think of somebody who makes like a lot of movies. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, you know, if that happens, it happens. My last book, Death from the Skies, wound up getting optioned by a production company and we made a three-part sort of a mini documentary series based on it. It was an interesting experience and I learned a lot about how to make TV doing that. It would be fun, I think, to do it with this one because this is a more intensely visual series of stories in the book. And also, as time goes on, we learn more about this stuff. I mean, you mentioned Trappist. JWST just observed Trappist-1b, the innermost planet, and figured out it probably doesn't have an atmosphere, which we expected because it's really close to the star. But that happened literally after the book, like a month before the book actually came out. And so there's always going to be things that we can do more of as more discoveries come in. And that's always a lot of fun to try to handle when you're making some sort of medium. Well, and I was going to ask, like, how hard is it to keep up with all the latest announcements and developments in astronomy when you're writing such an expansive book such as this, right? Because it's like, I mean, even when I just think from like a newsletter perspective, I mean, you have a newsletter that comes out multiple times a week in large part because there's just so much going on, I would imagine. That's got to be really tough to keep up with in the publishing process as well. It's impossible to keep up. I used to write a daily blog for Sci-Fi Wire, and it was still impossible to keep up. And my newsletter comes out three times a week, and I will cover multiple topics a lot of the time. Just, you know, I have a short article about Mars and another one about a gas cloud or whatever. It's still impossible to keep up. My desktop is littered with notes. I've got a, a Word document with probably three or 400 links in it. Oh, my God. And some of them are ancient from, you know, a year or more ago. And so you have to pick and choose. And the problem is I don't always hear about everything. And so sometimes somebody will say, hey, did you hear about that black hole, something, something? And I'm like, oh, no, I have to go and read about that. And I may not write about it because there's just not, not enough space. I could write 3,000 words a day, every day, seven days a week and not be able to keep up. So there are times when it's hard. But on the other hand, a lot of that is what I call incremental discoveries. So it's, it's something interesting maybe to a scientist but for the public, it's not necessarily something I want to write about because it's not enough of an advance to write a whole lot about 
without confusing somebody. I mean, how many times have we heard that, like, to go back to oat muffins, oat muffins cure colon cancer. No, they don't. You have to eat 4,000 of these a day. Well, you're eating the wrong kind if you put, you know, uh, these berries in it. And, and, they, and it's all this back and forth. And at the end, you're like, where are we? Is this muffin going to make me live forever? Or is it going to, am I going to drop dead when I eat it? And I don't like to <laughs> I do never that. thought we'd be talking about oat muffins so much on this episode. You, you never know. I read a lot. <laughs> but here we are. <laughs> I love it. It's frustrating to see these papers come out and think, yes, this is a good paper. I like the science in it. It's important that they talk about it. But I, the public is not going to be engaged by the story. Worse, it might confuse them. And so you have to pick and choose a lot. And that, that actually helps because it's a fire hose. Yeah. So are there particular science missions that you are most excited about in future years? And, you know, maybe out of those, which missions do you expect will radically change the way that we think about astronomy? There are a lot of missions right now that are like JUICE just launched, which is a Jupiter orbiter by uh, the European Space Agency, which is going to fly past several of Jupiter's smaller, well, its moons are huge, but it's going to pass by a lot of its moons. We're going to see them up close for the first time in, in decades. And that's going to be super exciting. There's a lot we don't understand about these moons. They're really interesting. Europa is this icy moon that may have, well, we know it has liquid water under its surface. It may have an ocean of water under its surface and it may have life and we don't know. And, and JUICE, which I think stands for Jupiter Icy moon explorer. People now pick and choose whatever letters they want out of a, out of a <laughs> word instead of, used to be, I worked on STIS, which was the Space Telescope Imaging Spectrograph, S-T-I-S, boom. But now it's like, oh, we're just going to throw a nonsense word in there and pick a letter out of the middle. And it's not that bad, but some of them are hard to figure out. But JUICE will tell us a lot about these moons and that's really cool. JWST is up right now and it's already showing us that things aren't quite what we thought. There've been a lot of articles about how it's, you know, disproving physics, science boffins astounded at everything they've learned is wrong. It's like, no, these very distant galaxies that we're seeing are pushing our physics farther back than we thought. Galaxies are forming earlier than maybe we thought they could. But that doesn't mean that we're seeing a galaxy fully blown 100 million years before we know they can form. It's more, it's just, it's pushing things back a little bit. And we have to think about that as opposed to everything we know is wrong. But still, it's it's doing a lot of cool stuff. And what I'm really excited about is the Nancy Roman Space Telescope, which is very much like Hubble, has the same resolution as Hubble, which means you can see the same amount of detail and it can get as deep. It can see as faint objects as Hubble, but its field of view is 100 times Hubble's. In the amount of time Hubble can get a, an image, this thing can get a hundred of those images. And Hubble and JWST are what we call sort of pencil beam telescopes. They see very narrow spots on the sky, whereas Nancy Grace Roman Telescope is going to see this huge swath, and it will be able to look at entire clusters, see nearby galaxies all at once. It doesn't have to like mosaic them and go, you know, I'm going to go here and then look over to the right a little bit and right a little bit and right. And now I'm going to move down and go back and forth. It's no, it's going to go, Hey, I'm going to look at this whole thing all at once. And that's going to be amazing because it'll help us see faint stuff in our neighborhood, which is really hard to study. As I'm reading more papers on this, it's like these galaxies orbiting our galaxy or orbiting Andromeda, which is another nearby galaxy. They're hard to spot and they're hard to study because they're super faint. 
even though they're close by. And this big telescope will be able to just knock them back, you know, one after another. And that's going to be super, super cool. I mean, just hearing you talk about all these different missions, it's like, it's hard not to just be like giddy with excitement over what we're going to learn and what we're going to see. And it does feel like in a lot of ways, we're living in kind of this golden age of space science now, or maybe we have been for a while. And that's just kind of my perspective. as a Since the launch of Hubble and a few others, It's been pretty amazing. And we have these enormous telescopes on the ground with incredible advances in technology, which have allowed us to make their vision much sharper than we could when I was first studying this stuff. And also we have a lot of missions planned that are really phenomenal. And there's kind of a gap right now where there aren't like really big missions that are being built like JWST and Hubble and those kind of things. And so it may be in the 2030s before we see these things launch. But still, even with that gap, people who are in graduate school now, by the time they're my age, good heavens, I have no idea what they'll be seeing and learning. Okay, so another question that I have for you is which planets or moons in our solar system do you expect humans will find ways to live on or around at some point in the future? Oh, well, obviously the Earth's moon. I mean, that's certainly the easiest one to get to. It's not a huge amount of raw materials there that we know of that we can use. We can use the regolith to build buildings. There are some amount of metals in the rocks there, not a whole lot. And we think there's a lot of uh, water ice in the permanently shadowed regions and deep craters at the poles where the sun doesn't shine. And that would be very, very useful. But we don't really know how much it is. We don't know how pure it is. It may be mixed up with dirt. Dirt, regolith, here I am saying the wrong word. And we might have to figure out a way of extracting it. If we can, that's great because water is extremely useful for a lot of different things. But if we can't, that's going to be a problem because water is very difficult to ship up from Earth. But I I wonder, there are asteroids that share more or less a similar orbit as Earth. And maybe their orbits are slightly more elliptical or, or something like that, but they tend to be close to the Earth and they're orbiting at about the same speed. And so what that means is you don't need a huge rocket to get to them. You don't have to change your velocity a lot. And I wonder if some of these, and some of them are are decent sized, and those might actually be places where we might wind up visiting. In fact, back in the Obama years, there was an idea to visit one of these kind of asteroids, uh, a crewed mission with a mission with humans on it. So you never know, right? You know, you might think, oh, Mars, the moon, those are the easy ones. And it's like, actually, you know, there are other places that you may not know about that are interesting as well. Absolutely. Well, and even your discussion of like the Martian moons as well. I know that there's been some chatter about whether or not those could almost function as like a waypoint or something like that to Mars, but also very interesting, like your descriptions of them, of course, as like these sort of lumpy potato shaped objects as well. And just learned a lot about Phobos and Deimos that I had not read about before. And and I thought I knew a decent bit about those two. So very interesting stuff. (laughs) Thank you. And literally today, as we record this, I put out a newsletter talking about Demos, Demos, Dimos. Nobody knows how to pronounce it. I know. Um, Well, honestly, reading your book, I was like, I've been saying like Pluto's moon wrong. I was calling it Sharon and it's Chiron. And I was like, You know, and I always said Ryugu and it's Ryugu. It's like, we need a pronunciation guide. Oh gosh, yeah. And there are all these different languages. (laughs) We're getting better at naming things after non-English languages, which is nice. And so, yeah, the, the pronunciation can be confusing. But just last week, a few days ago, some news came out about Demos. 
that it may not be a captured asteroid, which has been sort of the thought all along. And it seems to be made of stuff that looks more like Mars, which means it may have had a formation process like our moon, where something huge smacked into Mars, blew a lot of junk out into orbit, and that coalesced into one or both of those moons. It's not clear. I don't think the, there's not been a paper published on this. And from what I've read, the data are a little iffy, but it's interesting, certainly. And there you go. I mean, what I wrote in the book is maybe already obsolete. Uh, you know, the book came out flipping two weeks ago and some, you know, <laughs> something, something already is, is maybe wrong. That's the penance you have for writing an astronomy book. <laughs> and pivoting a little bit here, but this is our final question before the lightning round. And one of the things that I really appreciate about your newsletter as well, and just in general, your communication style is that, you know, you also tend to touch on like the social issues around the space community and things like that as well. So I always think it's really interesting to ask people this question. I'm curious your answer, but at Celestial Citizen, we're all about the idea that humans can become not only better stewards of Earth, but also better interplanetary citizens. I think this fits in really well with Under Alien Skies, too, and the theme there. But in your opinion, what is one important way in which people can work toward becoming celestial citizens today? One way is simply to be more aware of what's going on in space and to not simply take for granted that what you're reading is the only way to think about things. My whole life I've been so pro-space exploration that it, it didn't occur to me that maybe not everything I thought is good. You know, when I was a kid and you see a movie and they're orbiting space stations and platforms and all of these wonderful things out in orbit around the earth. And it never occurred to me to even, oh, and oh my God, as somebody who grew up as an amateur astronomer who took his telescope out every clear night, it never occurred to me that in that future, ground-based astronomy is dead. You can't take any images from the ground. There's always going to be some piece of space probe or whatever, a satellite passing in front of your field of view. You go out at night and instead of seeing, oh, look how beautiful Orion is, there's you know 50 satellites passing over or, you know, oh, one of the solar panel satellites is passing overhead and it's as bright as the full moon and it washes out the sky. So it's one of those things. It's not simply assuming that everything is good. You have to think on all sides of it. You know, we're talking about launching rockets into space. Well, if you launch a rocket, there are some ecological effects of that, but it's typically not that bad. But now you're launching a thousand rockets a year. If you have one airplane, that's not a big deal. When back in the 1930s or 40s or something like that, you're launching airplanes not very often. Now we have them crisscrossing the skies all the time. What's the ecological impact of that? And it turns out it's big. We're burning a lot of fossil fuels. What's going to happen when we have a lot of rockets? It's just things like that. Think outside of what you're reading. Keep in mind, how is this impacting the planet? How is this impacting maybe other professions? How is this impacting people who are different than me? Is this going to be an issue for people who live in, in some country that I don't know that much about? And it turns out a lot of times, yeah, you don't know how, and it's maybe not obvious, but when somebody points it out and you go, oh God, that's awful. That's something to, to keep in mind. This episode of Celestial Citizen Podcast is in part sponsored by the Colorado School of Mines Space Resources Program. This first of its kind interdisciplinary program offers certificate, Master of Science, and PhD degrees for professionals around the world interested in the emerging field of extraterrestrial resources. The program focuses on developing core knowledge 
and design practices for effective and responsible identification, extraction, and use of resources in the solar system to enhance space exploration and enable the new space economy. To learn more about the MINE Space Resources Program, educational opportunities, and research activities, check out its webpage at space.mines.edu. Thank you again to the Colorado School of Mines Space Resources Program for your sponsorship this year. Okay, so we are now on to the lightning round. So this is a series of quick questions. You can either give a brief explanation as to why you picked what you did or no explanation at all and leave us in mystery. Are you ready? Sure. Can I, can I ever actually be ready for this? What am I going to say that's going to get me canceled? Okay, let's go. <laughs> Would you rather live on the moon or Mars? Actually, I wouldn't want to live on either because they're both hell holes and you'd have to work all the time. When you think about astronauts on the space station, they spend like 90% of their time keeping that thing running. And I actually do like reading social media and watching movies and playing with my dogs. So I'm not cut out for that sort of thing. And plus, if I go on a rocket, <laughs> I'm going to be so sick. I get so sick in cars when I read and in a rocket, I would just be puking constantly. So okay. I'm, I'm happy where I am. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. The most unloved astronomical object. The most unloved? Uh, Venus? Mercury? Planets that are hard to see. Venus has a thick atmosphere, so we can't see the surface and Mercury's always really close to the sun. We've sent probes to both, but not very many. And I would like to see them getting a lot more attention because they can teach us a lot about the earth and a lot about the solar system in general. Okay. Your favorite book, other than any of your own, about space, and it could be fiction or nonfiction. Oh gosh. I've had to write a couple of reviews of books because of my book coming out. And some book sites are saying, what are your five favorite books? And it's really hard to pick. And a lot of it is a legacy of when I was a kid, when I mostly read you know, straight white male writers. And so like the Expanse series, for example, nine books, and they're fantastic about space exploration, really sort of dig into a lot of, a lot of the nitty gritty about it. It's really terrific. For one of these reviews, I'm rereading Mary Roach's Packing for Mars. Mm. And that's a really good book about space exploration. And my friend, Zach Wienersmith and Kelly Wienersmith, uh, they're married, have a book coming out called A City on Mars, which is oh, available yeah. for pre-order. And it's all about what we're not doing about looking for space exploration. They investigated like, you know, what happens if you have sex in space and the woman gets pregnant? What happens? And we don't know. And there's no studies about this. And if we're talking about living in space, we have to study that kind of stuff. The book is really, really good. I read, a, I read an advanced copy. I even blurbed it and helped him with a couple of chapters. So that right. when that comes out in November, I strongly recommend anybody interested in space exploration read it. Yeah, I think I saw that in your newsletter was the first place I saw it. And I was like, oh, wow, I can't wait to read that. Yeah, so I think those are some great suggestions. And also the Mary Roach one, I know that just got adapted to like maybe a young teen or children's audience. I, I'm not exactly sure the age range, but I did actually see that at the local bookstore around here in, in Pasadena. She is just great. People say she's the funniest science writer today. And I'm like, hey, but you know, <laughs> her stuff's pretty funny. It's probably funnier than mine. <sighs> but I, I've read several of her books and they're just great. Very relatable, um, yeah, for sure. She's a great writer. So, Okay, Star Wars or Star Trek? Trek, easy. The Martian, Interstellar, or Contact? Contact. I liked The Martian. I hated Interstellar. I still defend that it's a terrible, terrible movie. 
I have many stories about it, including embarrassingly getting some of the science wrong in my review. But as storytelling goes, I just hated it. Contact is terrific. And it's also a wonderful book. Yes. No, that's true. Although I will admit, I do love Interstellar. Okay. I know a lot of people Uh, (laughs) like it. It wasn't for my own personal taste. No, you're not alone. You're not alone. I always ask people that. And it's very interesting to hear the responses. Okay. You mentioned The Expanse being a favorite of yours. Who's your favorite character on The Expanse? Oh, I don't know if I have a favorite character. As an audience member watching the show, I loved Amos. Amos Burton was the mechanic with a mysterious past, who was also a stone cold killer when he needed to be. As someone who really likes to dig into characterizations and stuff, he was fascinating. So yeah, it was a lot of fun watching him go. And I also like Avasarala, who is the sort of president of Earth. She winds up being a United Nations Secretary General. And her character was great too, but only because I love strong women characters. She has deep flaws that are fun to watch and she swears like a sailor. And there's, <laughs> I love that. Never got tired yeah. of that. No, she's such a great character as well. Okay, worst space pun ever. Anything involving Uranus, mis- being mispronounced <laughs> as Uranus. Yeah. Um, yeah. Speaking of pronunciations from earlier. I always tell people there are two funny jokes about that planet. One is from Futurama, which takes place a thousand years in the future. And one of the characters makes a joke about Uranus. Nobody gets it. And somebody says, oh, we were so tired of all the dumb jokes that we renamed that planet hundreds of years ago. And he said, oh, what, what's it called now? And they said, Eurectum. <laughs> it's a solid, <laughs> solid joke. It's really good. And I always tell people, I pronounce it Uranus. Really, it's Greek. It should be Uranos. But Uranus is is sort of how we would pronounce it. But that's not any better because now it's kind of like an adjective. And if you walk into a public restroom and go, oh, it smells Uranus in here, right? (laughs) There you go. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Okay. Will humans ever live beyond our solar system? Oh, golly, I don't know. As far as we know, faster than light travel is not possible. So that means it takes a long time to get to the nearest stars. However, we can build rockets that can get to the nearest stars in centuries, maybe less, decades. They're not great rockets. You have to basically blow up nuclear weapons on the backside of the rocket to propel it. And that has issues because you have to blow up like 100 of these things and that's bad. But anyway, it's technically possible. But will it ever happen? I mean, who am I to say never, you know, in somebody may invent faster than light travel today or it may not come for a hundred years, but if we're still around in a thousand years, who knows what we'll be able to do? Probably nothing because we'll have rotted our brains. Social media will have caused us all to kill each other. And that'll be the end of humanity. That's my guess. <laughs> oh my gosh. Maybe uh, maybe not such an optimistic thing for, for <laughs> plugging a book, which is all about traveling to other planets and this optimistic joy of seeing all these wonderful places. So yes, sure, we'll go to other planets. It'll be just like my book. And everybody will say, what a hero. What a visionary that he got all this right. Amazing. Well, and I feel like that kind of naturally segues us into this last question here. Finish this sentence. In 50 years, we'll all be what? Might be a dark (laughs) answer here, Phil. (laughs) All of us? um, In 50 years, a lot of us will be dead. In 50 years, we will all be half a century older. How about that? I get asked where do you see astronomy going in 10 years? And I'm like, how do you answer this question? If you would ask in 1975, when I was a little kid, you know, are we going to be living on the, on Mars in 10 years? I would have said, of course, look at Apollo and everything. We Well, not 75, maybe in 72. Look at all the progress we made. But then Nixon and Johnson and the space program getting revamped over and over again with Bush canceling 
the space shuttle and then Obama canceling Constellation and all these things, you know, every four years, the winds change. So you don't know where anything's going to be. And you have to also appreciate that there are huge breakthroughs in things like adaptive optics for astronomy, which I won't go into details, but allowed us to really, really sharpen ground-based telescope images and was a massive revolution in astronomy. So you never know when these things are going to pop up. And so I'm not playing that game. I'm not going to say, oh yeah, we'll have a hundred meter telescope on the far side of the moon talking to aliens from Tau Ceti. What I can say is, I hope that people appreciate how important science is, how important astronomy is for, for teaching us about the universe we live in, the planet we're on, and how we came to be. The sort of questions that were always relegated to religion for thousands of years are now firmly in, in science's corner. And just how amazing and wonderful it is just for the human experience to learn these things and see these beautiful pictures, keep investing in it and making forward progress in that sort of thing. So I won't say where we're going to be, but I'll say I hope that we're doing even better and even more than we're doing now. We would also like to extend a big thank you to another silver sponsor, Explore Mars. Explore Mars was founded to advance the goal of establishing a human presence on Mars, starting no later than the 2030s. The Humans to Mars Summit is the largest annual conference focused on achieving this goal. Humans to Mars features senior leadership and experts from NASA, private industry, academia, STEM, international space agencies, the entertainment industry, and the innovation sector, with hundreds of attendees and tens of thousands viewing the event online. To learn more about Explore Mars and the Humans to Mars Summit, visit exploremars.org. Thanks again for your sponsorship of Celestial Citizen this year. Phil, thank you so much for joining Celestial Citizen Podcast and sharing more about your brand new book, Under Alien Skies, and giving us a glimpse into this visual tour of the universe. For people listening, Under Alien Skies is available for purchase now at your local bookstore and online. I also highly recommend that you subscribe to Bad Astronomy Newsletter on Substack. We'll, of course, provide all the relevant links in the show notes. But Phil, thank you again for coming on the show today. This was wonderful. You're welcome. And thank you very much, Britt. Three, two, one. We have liftoff. And to our community of celestial citizens, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Celestial Citizen Podcast. This episode would not be possible without the terrific work of this show's editor, Victor Figueroa. Thank you, Victor. Also, a very special thank you to Graham Clark, who created the amazing intro and outro music for this podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Celestial Citizen, and I hope you are, then check out celestialcitizen.com. 
You can also follow along on Twitter at Celestial Citizen and Instagram at The Celestial Citizen. And be sure to sign up for Celestial Citizen's newsletter on Substack. You can find the link to all of these on our website. If you're interested in supporting the mission of Celestial Citizen, you can always reach out to learn more about opportunities to sponsor or become a patron of this podcast. A major component of Celestial Citizen is feedback and public participation. We want to hear what you have to say. So let us know what you think about humanity's future in space and what it should look like. Please share your voice and your unique perspective on social media. Or if you prefer, all of the Celestial Citizen articles can also be found on Medium. So drop a comment and join the conversation. If you love today's podcast, please have your friends and family subscribe on whatever device or platform you listen to podcasts on and leave a stellar review so others can get hooked as well. That's all for now, Celestial Citizens. I'll be back next week for another episode. In the meantime, don't be afraid to take up space.